Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Voting in the U.S. midterm elections closed on Tuesday, and as of Sunday morning, November 13th, Democrats appear to have secured another majority in the Senate. But ballots are still being counted in key races that will determine which party controls the House. It is clear, however, that the margins determining leadership in both chambers will be extremely small. In order to explore how the elections may impact the legislative debate over tech policy issues, I spoke with three experts from civil society groups that regularly engage with lawmakers to find out what scenarios and considerations are front of mind, even as we wait for the final tally. Hi, my name is Emma Alonzo. I'm the director of the Free Expression Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Hi, my name is Yosef Gattacho. I am the director of the Media and Democracy Program at Common Cause. Hi, I'm Matt Wood. I'm the vice president of policy and general counsel at Free Press. I am so pleased that the three of you can join me today to talk a little bit about the implications of the U.S. midterm elections on tech policy. Um, and I guess just before we get started, a word about what each of you do. Uh, if you give me kind of a, a sentence or two about uh, how you kind of interact with the Hill uh, in your day-to-day. Perhaps, Matt, I'll ask you first. Yeah, well, you have a great group here, if I may say so, and we all tend to interact with each other and with the Hill in some similar ways, you know, with a lot of overlap on some issues and less on some other issues that our different groups handle. So I would say Free Press is focused on a broad set of technology and media policy issues. We still do work on traditional reporting, as the name might suggest, and on kind of First Amendment reporters committee, uh, kind of press freedom work, also broadcasting work, which is still important, especially around times of elections, people seem to remember that when a lot of the time people want to think that broadcasters are no longer all that important. But then of course, we're probably best known for net neutrality and our FCC work that's more on the ISP and telecom side of the world. And nowadays, this is where we do more crossover with what Emma does as well. You know, we do all the platform work and so that touches copyright. But now there's a lot of talk about antitrust, which is one of the hottest things on the Hill, privacy content operation. So, you know, maybe not everything in the field, but a pretty broad swath of things. And we're pretty active on Capitol Hill, both our lobbyists here in DC, but also the people we have on our different member lists that we try to activate to and get them talking to their uh, representatives too. Emma, what does your shop look like? Sure. So I head up all of CDT's work on law and policy related to freedom of expression online. So what shapes people's ability to access information and find places for their speech on the internet and connected technologies. Um, As far as Congress goes, that means I spend a lot of time talking to people about Section 230, the intermediary liability law in the United States, um, as well as weighing in on a variety of different laws um, or legislative proposals that have uh, an impact on freedom of expression and First Amendment rights. Um, That can be everything from online child safety to um, competition bills. I'm fortunate to work with a lot of really great uh, people focused on different substantive issue areas at CDT all get pulled in on surveillance or privacy, net neutrality, competition, all that good stuff. In addition to focusing on legislation on the Hill, we also do a lot of work um, in the courts as amici uh, and a lot of uh, independent research as well. And Yosef? Common Cause is a democracy reform organization. Uh, We work to ensure that our democracy works for everyone. 
as the Media and Democracy Program Director, we focus on uh, the intersection of technology and democracy. It's really about making sure that technology facilitates and uh, supports participation in our democracy in a meaningful way. What's funny is I get to work with uh, Emma and Matt and many others on many tech policy issues. We just approach things from a slightly different lens. So when it comes to broadband access and affordability, we think broadband is, is crucial to making sure that everyone can fully participate in 21st century democracy. With media, it's all about making sure that there are independent and diverse owners of, of traditional media and that new media platforms aren't engaging in harmful practices that undermine our democracy. So what does that look like when it comes to congressional activity? It's looking at legislation that promotes broadband access, that uh, ensures that there's net neutrality out there for the, the FCC has authority for net neutrality. Uh, it's making sure that uh, we have uh, sustainable local journalism. Local journalism is critical to a functioning democracy, but as a lot of folks may know, uh, our local journalism ecosystem is declining and there's a lot Congress can do to support it in a meaningful way. So it's really about uh, how do we interact with the consumer groups, the civil rights groups, uh, and as a democracy group, making sure that our voice is heard in the tech policy debates. So I'm speaking to you on Friday afternoon, 4 p.m. Eastern time, and we still don't know quite yet who will have control of the Senate, which party will have control of the House. You know, that, of course, makes this discussion contingent, of course, on those outcomes. And perhaps we'll know more by the time I'm set to publish this on uh, Sunday. But I want to ask you all a little bit about how the tech policy debate and legislative priorities might change depending on the outcome. Uh, what are you expecting and what types of scenarios are you preparing for? Maybe Emma, we'll start with you. One of the main scenarios we were planning for has clearly not materialized. And that's the idea of a red wave that sweeps both the House and Senate and gives really large majorities to the GOP. That potentially posed uh, or, or would have created a scenario where we'd see a lot of different kinds of activity around tech policy, um, particularly on the intermediary liability issues I focus on. Um, there's been a lot of call from the right to uh, revoke or repeal Section 230 um, to really try to constrain online services ability to do content moderation, all coming from this you know, not empirically founded uh, concern about anti-conservative bias and content moderation. So, so that was the scenario that I was really gearing up for as basically a worst case scenario, um, because I figured we would see a return of a lot of different kinds of bills that we'd seen last Congress um, and proposed uh, throughout this Congress that would seek to limit companies' ability to remove disinformation or hate speech um, or different kinds of harassment that don't meet that legal threshold of actually being illegal content. Um, that didn't happen. <laughs> and so now I think we're, we're in a much more interesting in a lot of ways scenarios um, because whatever ends up happening with either chamber, no one's going to have a terribly large margin. Um, there's going to be kind of really close control, whether it's Dems in the Senate, Republicans in the House, or some mixed, you know, some other version of, of an outcome. Um, I think you're going to probably see, my guess would be sort of a similar continuation of the focus on bipartisanship that we saw during this Congress, um, that you'll see maybe a return of some of the bills that have gotten pretty far along the process uh, in this Congress, and a sense that no party can really just bulldoze a, a set of policies um, through their chambers because we've seen how hard it is to keep a really narrow majority together. 
I think whatever the scenario that comes out of uh, midterm elections, we know that uh, the margins are going to be very slim in terms of who controls the majority in either the House or the Senate. So when you look back at this uh, current Congress, what have we done uh, in terms of passing tech policy legislation? Well, we got the uh, Infrastructure Act, which allocated billions of dollars for broadband. So that's one piece of legislation. And I think there was also the, the CHIPS Act, which allocated a lot of funding for semiconductor research. So there wasn't a whole lot of legislation around tech policy outside of those two bills. So what does that tell you about the next Congress? Uh, if the margins are slim one way or the other, we may not see a whole lot of movement on tech legislation uh, unless there is a, a bipartisan framework. Uh, so there's a couple of things that could be bipartisan. One, uh, we know that comprehensive privacy legislation is currently moving uh, in this Congress. The bill passed out of the Energy and Commerce Committee with overwhelming bipartisan support. That's certainly a good place to start for the next Congress if the bill doesn't pass this year. And there are a couple other things to consider, too. No matter the control of Congress, we know there's going to be some change in leadership. Senator Wicker is leaving his position as ranking member of the Senate Commerce Committee. So there'll be a new ranking member or a new chair of that committee. There could be a new uh, leader of the House. Uh, there could be uh, new House committee chairs. All of that's going to change the focus of what uh, various committees and members of Congress look at. So it's going to be an interesting time one way or the other. Matt, how about from your perspective? Yeah, of course, a lot of agreement with all the great analysis there. I guess I would take it a little further into just some of those particular topics that were already touched upon and thinking about what Emma mentioned, you know, it, it's a funny landscape, right? Like the odds in Congress are always that the thing won't pass, whatever the thing is, especially when you need 60 votes in the Senate. And nobody's had that because we don't have the red wave and the Democrats had such a slim majority in this past Congress. What I think that means going forward is that, you know, funnily enough, like content moderation and privacy and usually described as antitrust, but there's a lot of work that I might put all, all of those three things into like a platform accountability space, like people are concerned about Facebook or Google or Twitter or all of the above. Those things have all moved pretty far ahead in this Congress, but not gotten to the finish line. And that's because they actually do have bipartisan proponents, but they have bipartisan opposition as well. And so I think like exactly as Emma said, like we might see those things continue to move along, um, but it's not been predictable or easy or like, you know, either party or frankly, either position has enough votes to just steamroll and do whatever they like. They've had to really work hard and build and that bipartisan privacy bill Yosef mentioned is, if you ask me, something of a miracle to get a, a such an overwhelming vote in the current Congress in this political environment. And yet, you know, it hasn't gotten all the way there. It's been stalled out. I would say on the more traditional media issues, and here I would put broadcasting and, you know, the kind of telecom issues I was talking about, net neutrality and kind of broadband affordability uh, and deployment, you know, universal service and digital divide. Like, I'm so glad Yosef mentioned the infrastructure bill. That was a crowning achievement and really important. And yet there, here's where I'm going to try to draw the line between that and the, the platform side. There really are pretty clear partisan divides. Democrats and Republicans tend to line up on different sides of the street when it comes to media concentration and whether we ought to be doing more or less to stop traditional media companies like broadcasters and newspapers get together on the broadband affordability and, you know, whether broadband's a utility, right? Like, it's funny that utility has become a dirty word for some people in Washington, D.C., and yet I think most people on the street today would tell you, yeah, broadband is essential. It's a utility. Please help me to get it on better terms. That's where you really do see the partisan divides, where there's barely anybody willing to cross that line. And yet, for exactly the same reason, I don't think much is going to change, right? Like, neither party no matter who controls which chamber at the end of this, has enough votes to like wipe the slate clean and start over and really start pushing through a lot of laws that would change that calculus and change the way people at the Federal Communications Commission do business 
Last thing, footnote, if they can do any business, because that's one of the big things that is still pending too. And that's a big question here in the lame duck is will the FCC ever get a fifth and deciding vote or will that remain stalled? And, you know, I wish I was smart enough to say, here's how the election impacts that likelihood. But I think that is also still very much up in the air as Gigi Sohn, who was nominated more than a year ago now for that fifth and final seat at the Federal Communications Commission, still hasn't gotten a vote on the Senate floor. If I could add one quick thing, in terms of some reactions to what's going on in the the midterm results, we've seen that in the Republican camp, election denialism was a huge issue. It has been a huge issue. Um, We saw some election deniers win positions, uh, but some who didn't actually admit a defeat. So depending on the dynamic of the Republican Party, it could be really interesting to see, are the election deniers going to control the party or will they take more of a traditional approach to party politics and legislation they care about. How that translates to tech policy legislation could be interesting. Some of the driving force around platform accountability has been this false narrative that platforms are biased against conservative viewpoints. We know from the research it's not true. Uh, What could be interesting is if Republicans, uh, the election deniers aren't in control of the Republican Party, there could be a more return to normalcy in terms of let's look at the business models of platforms. Let's look at ways that we could regulate and legislate certain uh, business harms that lead to dangerous outcomes that uh, we all think should be worth legislating. Let me press just on this question here just for a moment, um, because, you know, we have heard some inklings of a kind of backlash against uh, disinformation uh, mitigation efforts, backlash against even disinformation research in universities. Uh, And some of that has come out of some of these committee hearings, people like Tom Cotton, Ted Cruz, you know, questioning some of these practices, that kind of thing. Can we imagine uh, in a Republican, you know, if Republicans have the gavel that we'll see more investigations into that type of thing? It's possible. I think one, it depends on the direction the party goes. Next Congress, who's going to be uh, House Speaker if Republicans take control of the House, what the priorities are going to be for the House. In terms of the Senate, uh, what the priorities are going to be there. I think when it comes to disinformation, it's unfortunate that it's become a, a partisan issue when we're looking purely at elections. Uh, elections are a nonpartisan issue. There's nonpartisan information about how to vote. Uh, and that's really what we focus on is making sure that voters have access to that and legislating in a way to make sure that voters have access to accurate information uh, on how to vote. And that's really focused around business models uh, of platforms. So while we could see some movement from uh, the more extremist side of the Republican Party around the backlash of disinformation, I'm hopeful that there's also uh, a good discussion around not just the harms that disinformation causes, but what can we do from a business model approach to mitigate those harms. Well, and I chime in that um, one area where we've seen some of this pushback on disinformation research has actually come up in the context of bills focused on trying to enable independent researchers to have access to data held by social media companies or other tech companies so that they can do these kinds of investigations. Um, and that's been an interesting issue because it's we've actually seen on both sides of the Atlantic, this was coming up in the European Union around the Digital Services Act as well, um, that some policymakers often on the right, but not exclusively, really have a visceral negative reaction to the idea of only letting, you know, researchers who are affiliated with accredited universities have access to this kind of data. And there's an important point to that, right? There's a lot of really interesting and important research and journalism um, and other kinds of investigations that happen by people who 
aren't in uh, necessarily affiliated with a um, you know a well-regarded or a credentialed institution, but who are working freelance, who are working for themselves, who are part of a civil society organization, um, or you know some other kind of context, and that. What I think has been really positive is we've seen sponsors of those bills and those proposals really take that kind of feedback on board and think about what are the ways that you can look at an issue like researcher access to try to do some of the really challenging balancing between wanting to have as many researchers, researchers as possible have access to information, but also recognizing the serious privacy risks that can happen if you just kind of made everybody's data open to everyone um, who, who happened to call themselves a researcher. So I think there have been some more sort of sophisticated discussions going on about how could you look at the issue with you know, maybe the most highly vetted researchers having access to the most sensitive data only in very controlled circumstances, all the way through to really looking at what's the kind of data that could just be made that's already public, already in some ways available to everybody, but it could be made more useful. It could be made more accessible either through APIs or funding for the actual computational resources necessary and analytical resources necessary to make use of it. Um, there's a lot of things that could happen on the already public data side of things that would actually be in this much more kind of um, egalitarian and democratic approach of open access to everyone. So I do, even in areas like that, where we've, we've definitely got some strong pushback on ideas of, you know, oh, these researcher access bills are just about, you know, elitist Ivy League institutions. There are ways forward. And I think uh, what gives me some hope on those issues is that already we've seen members really interested in kind of engaging on those issues and finding a way forward and not letting the kind of immediate pushback be enough to stop an idea in its tracks. Yeah, and I'll I'll just add so one sort of quick point on the congressional side, and then I'll plunge, but hopefully not drown in, in the disinformation substantive question. I mean, Justin's question is so important, right? Like because we say investigations, and even though a lot of us would like to think that civics is easy and Congress passes bills, that doesn't happen very often. So much of what they do is they influence how the administration works based on oversight hearings, either directly of the administration or just on general topics, whether or not they call up. And, you know, especially as Republicans controlling one or both chambers of Congress calling up Democratic officials to testify in front of them, that can exert enormous pressure. And, you know, so like if we do have a, a Chairman Ted Cruz of the Senate Commerce Committee rather than a Chairwoman Maria Cantwell, that's a very different atmosphere, he said, to state the very obvious. So that could very much chill what the government wants to do to try to look into this information. But I'm using the word chill there under advisement because that's the concern that people have with this information, quite rightly, right? Who decides what is this information? That's right. There have been so many Republican outcries about this. So when I talk about like plunging into this information and what to do about it, everything Yosef said is so smart, right? Like that's where we've kind of pitched our extensive disinformation work to at Free Press, trying to look at the corporate accountability side of it. You know, actually, not just empowering, but encouraging companies to take down disinformation because it's not just good for their business model; it's good for the country and the world. I dare say. But you know, when you try to get into the government zone, I think that's where I'm more aligned with Emma and with a lot of people in this in this space of like, yeah, if you wanted to say have the Biden administration do more to take down disinformation, would you trust the Trump administration or a future Republican administration with the same powers? Right. That's kind of the classic, not just First Amendment conundrum, but First Amendment principle that makes us so cautious in this space. And yet, you know, we're seeing people awash in disinformation and in fact, even elected officials putting it out there. So while I'm fully on board with the question, with the sort of position that it, we have to be extremely careful what we as a country and we as a government try to do about it, 
doing nothing is not much of an option. And so, yeah, if, if we're going to limit the study of it and, you know, be truly uh, kind of shrugging our shoulders and saying nothing we can do about it, it's just going to happen. And, you know, liars are going to lie. Well, that's a pretty sad place to be, especially when we see elections and you know, perhaps our very democratic institutions in so much jeopardy from the attacks they've been under for the last several years, at least. That will be one to watch very closely. We'll see which way it goes. I wanted to come back just for a moment to the American Data Privacy and Protection Act, the ADPPA. Uh, Matt, you mentioned it was a sort of slight miracle that it came out of committee with so much support. What are its prospects uh, based on what we know now about the makeup of Congress? Is there a chance that, you know, with the election out of the way, no matter which way Congress goes, that perhaps it would advance? I think there's a chance. It's just, you know, for one thing, like I said, the odds are always against any bill moving ahead because it's so hard to get the votes lined up and just get the floor time and the logistics are always hard. And for two, it's not really been a partisan divide, but it's also not been the same issues in every quarter of Congress. I mean, we often talk about, or at least folks up on the Hill talk about the four corners, right? There's like the Republican and Democratic leadership on both sides of the Hill in both the House and in the Senate. And so on the House side, it's even more complicated. You had 53 to 2 vote, all the Democrats and all the Republicans, except for two Democrats, I believe, in the final tally, voting to advance the bill out of committee in the House. And yet there's been this strong opposition from California members, sometimes vocally, sometimes a little more behind the scenes, people saying, well, California has a strong privacy law. And so we, California, typically Democrats, are not actually on board, even though many of them are on that committee and voted to move the bill ahead. They, they had some reservations. So you have kind of federal state and, and regional politics in play, too. And then on the other side of the hill, crossing over to the Senate, you have on this bill, three of those four corners that have been supportive, both of the committee you know, chair and ranking member, the Democrat and the Republican in the House, and funnily enough, the Republican minority in this current Congress on board on the Senate side, but not the Democratic chairwoman of the Senate Commerce Committee, Maria Cantwell. So that's why my answer is so long. You know, yes, I think it could move ahead, but this has not been something, as I indicated earlier, where it's been Democrats say yes and Republicans say no. It's a little more complicated than that. And while that's refreshing, it's not have everything just be strictly partisan. You know, it doesn't make the prospects for something moving any simpler or easier because it's had different kinds of hurdles to get over and needles to thread. I want to just briefly jump in to add on to what Matt said. Uh, he's absolutely right about the political dynamics. Uh, the fact that he said it's a miracle that the, the bill passed out of committee is it's funny, but uh, sadly true. When you think about uh, when is the last time we Congress has passed a privacy bill, it's it's been decades. And I was trying to think back, when is the last time that uh, a privacy bill passed out of a committee? Uh, and I couldn't tell you when that was. Uh, it may have been when the last privacy bill was passed out of Congress. So the fact that this bill did pass out of committee with overwhelming bipartisan support should be a really good indicator of where where Congress should continue to build off of if the bill does not pass this year. Uh, ideally, it does, because uh, I think there is a real interest from both sides to do something on this bill and to get a comprehensive framework uh, on privacy passed. Uh, I think the speaker is in an interesting position. She's trying to balance the needs and interests of California, as well as the rest of the Democratic caucus. Uh, and we know that the rest of the Democratic caucus uh, at least from the committee vote, seems to really like this bill. So we're hopeful that there'll be a, a compromise struck that will allow this bill to, to move forward, at least in, in the House side. And if it does get to the floor for a House vote, it's going to show even more of an interest by Congress to do something uh, if the bill can't move past that. So there are certainly steps in, in the works. 
And we're hopeful that uh, it will continue to move. Yeah. And I think CDT is in the same boat as um, Common Cause and Free Press of thinking there's no good reason it shouldn't go forward in lame duck, um, but plenty of political reasons why it might not. Um, but the, I mean, the pathway is clear enough for it to for this bill to keep moving. And I really hope that members also think about whatever their priorities are, whatever their strategy is going to be for the next Congress, whoever ends up in control. So many of the conversations we've been having this year around competition, around, you know, how to regulate app stores, what to do about kids safety online. They're all a lot harder because we don't have baseline privacy legislation. We don't have that sort of solid framework that lays out this is what is and isn't acceptable to do with data. This is the base, you know, the, the foundation of how online services can use and can't use our data that you can build more complicated policies or more specific policies on top of. So we see in a lot of the other bills, including everything from researcher access to data to competition to, to kid safety, also a lot of kind of trying to do a little bit of data protection regulation in the background to sort of say, okay, well, for the purposes of this bill, you've got to have this sort of framework set and it just, it gets a lot more difficult to move forward. So if anybody has big ambitions about moving bigger tech bills in the next Congress, getting baseline privacy legislation in place now would probably make that easier. I, just, I want to add one more thing too, on top of what Yosef and Emma are both saying, which is, you know, not only is this a good idea and a good bill because it's important privacy legislation, but it's not just any old privacy bill. One of the big landmarks, as far as we're concerned, is the civil rights component here and not just talking about privacy as the right to be left alone, but as preventing, as Emma was describing too, the kinds of data abuses, right? Like people are being harmed by the fact that companies can take in so much information and chew it up and, and do a lot of things with it, including things that certainly seem to fail current civil rights law, but that it's been harder to apply to platforms and to other spaces online. So, you know, that's why we and why so many other groups, including Common Cause and many traditional civil rights groups too, have spent so much time trying to push this bill ahead, despite the, you know, what, what was I saying earlier, kind of unusual headwinds. It's not that Democrats are in favor and Republicans are against. It's been a little more complicated than that. But yeah, as Emma said, there's, there's no good reason for it not to move. It's just that there's a lot of uh, different variables in play right now. Yeah, we can talk about this bill all day and you'll have to stop us at some point. But just uh, to sum it up, again, going back to the fact this bill passed out of committee with bipartisan support is really important when you think about what's in the bill. Matt mentioned the civil rights protections. Uh, these are really landmark protections that make sure that companies can't use data in discriminatory ways that harm people of color uh, more than any other uh, communities for uh, a lot of the harms that we see. It also has uh, data minimization uh, protections. Uh, a lot of the bills we saw before this one really just furthered the notice and choice model, uh, which is what we have uh, right now, and that doesn't really work. So the fact that we were able to get uh, both sides of the aisles to agree on moving the ball forward in a way that will provide important protections and change the way data is collected and processed uh, really speaks for where we are. I want to give each of you a chance to mention any other bill that is currently kind of on the floor or in consideration, perhaps to share what you think might be different in this next Congress about its prospects, uh, how the different uh, dynamics that are at play uh, may impact whether it could move ahead. So I mentioned earlier on that we really care about supporting local journalism and local news outlets. Uh, Congress has considered a number of bills this session around how do we support local news. 
The one that is unfortunately um, moving is the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act. Uh, essentially, what this bill does is give an antitrust exemption for news publishers to collectively bargain against uh, platforms for greater shares of ad revenue. Uh, we are not a fan of this bill for a number of reasons. Uh, first and foremost, uh, we think this bill really just uh, entrenches the existing model of um, media conglomerates owning much of our media and not really supporting smaller independent outlets. At the same time, we don't think this bill is going to really solve the problem. You're putting in pockets in the hands of big conglomerates at the end of the day and not really putting any safeguards to make sure that more reporters are hired. Uh, there's more investigative news and information that meets the needs and interests of communities. Uh, so you're not really solving the problem and you're not moving the ball forward in a way where changing the way local news is, is supported. And, and that's something that we're really concerned about. And do you think anything about this election will change its prospects? We're hopeful that uh, we can restart the conversation next year. Uh, ideally, th this bill won't reach uh, the floor for a vote. And uh, uh, I think given that there, there was some bipartisan support for it, uh, there's work to do in terms of changing the, the dynamics around what we consider to be strong local news support legislation. And that's work that we're planning on doing in the new year. Emma, is there a particular bill you're watching? So a bill I'm watching, although I don't have a great sense of exactly how the changes from the midterms election will affect it, but um, Section 702 of uh, FISA is up for reauthorization. And so that is going to necessarily be part of, um, so the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, that is necessarily going to be part of the conversation around tech and, and privacy and government surveillance um, in the next Congress. That could be an opportunity not just to reform Section 702, but maybe open up conversations for um, looking at intelligence surveillance more broadly. And so there, I think the need, there will definitely be a need for kind of bipartisan negotiation and agreement um, and potentially kind of some more room than there has been in the past, um, given, you know, some of the increased skepticism on the right of the FBI, um, you know, of government surveillance in general uh, and kind of specific use of these different powers. So um, I think that'll definitely be something to watch and could be an interesting place to see where um, either new members uh, coming on board or changes in leadership and committee assignments might really help shape that, uh, that negotiation. Matt, is there one that's on your radar? Well, I mean, you were kind of up to us with what we were chatting beforehand, too, to mention the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act. And maybe we can swing back to that as well. And, you know, it sort of loosely fits into the category Emily was talking about when it comes to government surveillance, but it also has some some corporate surveillance or government, you know, almost like public-private partnerships for surveillance, if you will, if that's not an abomination to think about, but that's really what happened. I'll say a word about that, but then I'd love also to keep talking about the kinds of antitrust bills that Yosef was talking about, too, because I think that is just so important and so much of what we've seen move in this Congress. But yeah, so the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act is basically a notion coming from Senator Wyden and others, as the somewhat colorful title would suggest, that is, if, the, if the government would need a warrant to get this information on its own accord, then it shouldn't be able to skip that warrant process and say, oh, that's messy. We'd rather not do that. Or maybe we couldn't even get a warrant. We'll just buy that same data from data brokers or other kinds of online businesses. Um, again, like I think we're all kind of like, you know, accurately portraying just how complicated the situation is. I don't know that who holds control of Congress in either chamber really changes the fate and fortune of this bill, you know, either in the lame duck or in new Congress, because again, it has been somewhat of a fractured landscape. It has good democratic support, 
and Republican co-sponsorship too. And there's certainly been uh, some momentum for it in both judiciary committees, both the Senate and the House side. But it seems like Senate judiciary leadership under Senator Durbin has been unwilling to put that bill up for a hearing of its own and kind of to move it on its own track. I mean, there's a lot of people who look around the privacy landscape, understandably enough, as I think most advocates do, at least our three groups and many, other, many others like us, and say, well, it really is a whole continuum, right? We need to worry about government surveillance and intrusion, but we're also concerned about corporate abuse of people's data. And so what I've heard sometimes is, a, I think it's fair to say, excuse is, well, we can't move this bill about government surveillance unless we also have comprehensive privacy legislation, leading people like me to say, we do meet the ADPPA, right? Like, let's, let's not try to reinvent the wheel again to make it as redundant as possible, because that's what we often do. But I think that's given the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act, some of the uh, hurdles and hiccups we've seen where people are like, you know, they ought to embrace it. I'm Judiciary Committee. Our job is to regulate surveillance by the government, not so much to get over into the corporate side. And yet there have been some rumblings about, well, we can't do this until we have all of the answers. And of course, just like with Section 702, don't underestimate the influence that the intelligence community and law enforcement officials have when it comes to, you know, either openly or in, in back rooms going to committee members and lawmakers across the hill and in, in both parties and saying, oh, this is bad for security. It's bad for America. You know, you can't move this ahead despite what those privacy advocates are telling you. Well, let's finish then on antitrust. I've got a couple of bills that, of course, are waiting for their day in the sunshine in the Senate. Um, what do we think is going to happen there? I mean, I can go and continue. And yeah, I was, I was trying to like come back to what Yosef was saying, because there's so much to say about the JCPA. But you're right. It's not the only antitrust bill. And yet, so many of the bills that have been packaged as antitrust reform have so many other things they're trying to accomplish and do as well. And that's really where I think it's all three of our groups, you know, see a lot of question marks and even dangers in the approaches that have been taken. Now, that hasn't been the song sung by many groups that also rightly call themselves progressives. I mean, you know, there are many groups that are supporting both of those bills. And when I say both, I mean, not only the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act, the JCPA that Yosef was talking about, it is really about trying to let traditional media companies bargain with and have more leverage against Google and Facebook. But also another bill that's under Klobuchar, Democratic chair of the Judiciary and Antitrust Subcommittee in the Senate, has been doing most of the work on lately. It's called the uh, American Innovation and Competition Online Act, or ACOA, another pretty bad acronym if you ask me, but I'm not the one who gave it to it. So that's what some people call it, or S2992 is a little more uh, the shorthand way to describe it, but not very meaningful. But in any case, that's basically a, a non-discrimination bill. And you know, the, when I talk about these bills being antitrust plus, in our case, you know, we might say plus dangerous other ideas. It basically says that big platforms, and it really is about size, shouldn't be able to favor their own products over other people's products. You think about Amazon is not only a seller of its own goods, but also as a platform for third-party sellers. You know, there's a lot to like in that, and it certainly makes a lot of sense from an antitrust standpoint. But the danger that we see in that bill and in the journalism bill is not just the somewhat weird mechanics of the antitrust and competition policy they're trying to make, but also this notion that non-discrimination law should apply to platforms more generally too. Meaning, you know, that they should be neutral, that they shouldn't discriminate. And I'm using air quotes here, which is a silly thing to do when we're not on video, but they shouldn't discriminate against anything, right? Including political viewpoint. That's really maybe where I would see the biggest difference to kind of circle back around to the change in Congress is, yeah, as Emma laid out earlier, you know, if Republicans control, well, they've been the ones who've been the most concerned about political bias, alleged, supposed, not proven, but something that they claim is happening all the time on these big tech platforms. And they've taken a really staunch anti-Silicon Valley stance. 
And so while all these antitrust bills have had, again, as I was saying earlier, you know, bipartisan support and opposition, it's really interesting to watch the, the bipartisan support is almost like people agreeing with each other, but for diametrically opposed reasons. You know, I, I think it's fair to paint with this broader brush. Many Democrats would say companies are not taking enough down. There's too much hate speech. There's too much violent speech. There's too much disinformation about COVID or elections left up there. Republicans, just the opposite. You know, take down less, leave up more so-called conservative speech. And yet they've agreed, at least some of them, and most of the time on the remedies, which can sometimes be taking aim at Section 230 or around these antitrust bills. You know, you definitely have Republicans and Democrats alike joining hands. And I think almost, I don't want to say naively, because I think they know what they're doing, but they're agreeing to work together to advance something that they want opposite outcomes from. And so that's a very funny place to be. But again, I think it's fascinating and it's interesting. It's better than just having people lined up behind the, the letter, you know, R's over here and D's over there. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the mechanics of the bills are working or that the political pathway forward is very clear. Yeah. And I just plus one to, to what Matt was saying and really just sort of underline for folks that the bipartisan support for some of the competition bills that we've seen has depended, at least in part, on keeping this sort of two sides reading different things into the same text agreement going on. Um, and so that'll be interesting to see in, I think, to a, a point maybe Yosef was making earlier, to see if that changes up at all in the next Congress, to see how much of a grip that sense that support from the right needs to be coupled with this sense of reigning in online services content moderation, if that loosens a little bit, that might lead to more kind of more flexible or robust bipartisan support for competition bills that might open up some room to to resolving some of the challenges that groups like CDT and others have, have pointed out of the potential significant downsides for um, for content moderation that are <laughs> inadvertently or intentionally put into the bill, depending on who you ask on any given day. Um, so I, you know, I hope that there is some path forward to resolving those issues because getting some reform to our competition law would be a really big improvement. That would be a, a great goal for the next Congress to set itself as well. Um, but I think I would hope to see a little bit more flex in that that bipartisan support so that maybe there's not as big a risk of the coalition breaking apart if they address the content moderation issues squarely. Are there specific races that you're following or specific outcomes that you've uh, noticed that you think are particularly impactful in the tech policy space? Yeah, I think the races to watch now are in Nevada, Georgia, and Arizona. We already know that Georgia Senate race between Herschel Walker and uh, Raphael Warnock is going to go into a runoff. What makes that one interesting is Senator Warnock is sitting on the Senate Commerce Committee right now, and that's a critical committee for tech policy issues. Um, depending on the outcome of that race, I'm not entirely sure what would happen if Walker wins and whether he'll just take the Senate Commerce seat or it will go to someone else. So that that's a key uh, seat on a key committee uh, that could you know swing or at least have some more influence in uh, some of these other uh, issues. Same with uh, Senator Cortez Masso. She sits uh, on a, the Senate Commerce Committee, I believe, and uh, she's also in a tight race. Uh, so there are key members on uh, the Commerce Committee that are up for re-election that could potentially change not just the dynamic of that committee, but what new folks on that committee may bring to the table. Yeah, I, I hate to give short shrift to the House. I mean, there's so many races and it's hard to believe, you know, as we speak, at least there's still so many dozens of them that are up in the air and not called yet. But I hope I'm not 
missing somebody obvious, but like very few of them have been on these key committees. And that that's not the end of the story, right? I mean, you can have an opinion on tech policy and be an influential thinker on tech policy. Senator Wyden is a good example of this without sitting on either the commerce or judiciary committees, which are the two that you know we spent a lot of our time in front of. But, you know, yeah, I just I don't think any of the House races like the balance of the House is important. And obviously it'll change not just who is the speaker of the House, but who controls those committees that we're talking about. On the Senate side, as Yosef said, yeah, I mean, that's that's really where, you know, the game hangs in the balance. And it's easier to see not just Senator Warnock being on the Commerce Committee, but with Senator Cortez Masto, her race actually explicitly involved references to Gigi Sohn, the you know, pending fifth SEC commissioner and her opponent, Adam Axel, the Republican, campaigned on this. And, you know, I, I don't live in Nevada and track it that closely. I don't know what proportion of his campaigning was spent on that, but there were definitely, you know, enough tweets and statements here and there saying, you know, send me to Washington. Senator Cortez Masto backs this radical, wild-eyed FCC nominee, Gigi Sohn. And, you know, those of us who know Gigi and who have followed the, her positions over the years know that she is not that far out of the mainstream and out of step, right? She's a good consumer advocate. And I think that's why she's got so much static and companies have taken advantage of their ability to keep the FCC in a stalemate. But I mean, that's a funny race just because, right? Like, I don't think it ought to have been, and yet it did get to be contentious, even over technology issues, very much through this warped lens that some Republicans are holding up to a consumer advocate appointed to serve on the Communications Commission and thus far stalled and, and stymied in her attempts to get there. Yeah, and I think no particular races that I'm tracking um, you know, in the House, but the overall control of the chamber and especially the margin, I think is going to be really important. I think we can expect if we see, honestly, whoever controls either chamber, we're going to see a lot more of the sort of oversight hearings, the questions for big tech, um, you know, hearings and a lot of focus in all the relevant committees on tech, I would imagine, whoever happens to be in control of the committees, where leadership is going, um, you know, the actual membership of the committees will really be what ends up setting setting the tone of those hearings, setting the particular focus. So understanding at the end of the day, those kind of the big the big picture margins are really going to be important because that'll that'll be what feels like the difference between having a mandate to do something and having maybe enough energy to do something if you can get enough other people to agree with you. Well, we'll see how it all turns out. Uh, certainly, the landscape might be different uh, by the time I publish this podcast on Sunday. So perhaps we can come back together at some point in the new year and see how it all shakes out. Matt, Emma, Yosef, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Great to be here. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.